much and we'll get started in our study of Revelation. Turn with me to chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, 22. We'll look at verses 8 through 15 tonight. Before we get started, just a few uh, housekeeping uh, items. One is, uh, if you would like all of the sessions, all 27 sessions, be 28 after next week, 28 sessions of Revelation, let us know. We have a flash drive that we will give you. You can put this in your computer or in your car, wherever, listen to them, uh, and have all of the studies of the uh, entire book of Revelation on this flash drive. So just let us know that you want one sometime this week or next week, and we will get that to you free of charge. So uh, if you would like these, just please let us know. Let me let you know where we're going with our study. This is our 27th week in the book of Revelation. We've gone through it very slowly and carefully. And uh, what we're going to do, we'll end up next week with the conclusion through chapter 21 of, a verse, uh, of chapter 22, verse, 20, 20, verse 21 of chapter 22. And then after that, we're going to the following week. There, were some, there have been questions that have come up concerning Revelation that we're going to talk about. Uh, will we know each other in heaven? How do we know that? Uh, what's heaven going to be like? Um, what about the rapture? Is, if, if there's a rapture, why is it never mentioned in Revelation? It's never talked about in Revelation. Why? If there is a rapture, then why not? Uh, what about Gog and Magog? In, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about Gog and Magog. It appears to be Russia. How does Russia play a part in the end times? Those type of questions we're going to look at it for five weeks after we finish the book of Revelation. I think that you'll find these interesting. Many of you have asked these questions over the course of the last 27 uh, sessions. And so I want to answer some of those and give some time to answering those. So October 26th through November the 30th, we're going to look at five weeks worth of questions from Revelation that I think you'll find interesting that will, that will conclude then the study uh, that we have. Then I'll be gone for the next two Wednesdays, as many of you will with me, as we're going to Israel uh, in December. And then after the first of the year in January, we'll start a new book study. I'll tell you more about that coming up. So that's where we're going. Next uh, Wednesday night, we'll wrap up chapter 22 through verse 21. And then the following week, for five Wednesdays, we're going to be looking at questions that have come up about the book of Revelation that we've been studying. Now, tonight I didn't want to rush through verses 8 through 21, so I kind of divided it up, and we'll be looking uh, at 8 through 15, and then next week, 16 through 21. So let's look at where we've been. Look at letter A on your outline, first of all, the new, the new heaven and the new earth. Chapter 20 of Revelation ended with the earth and the heavens. Now, when it says heavens, it's talking about the sky, the atmosphere, the solar system, that is all considered heavens, plural, in Scripture. Now, we think of heaven, we think of capital H, heaven where God lives and where our loved ones live. That's, that's capital H, heaven. The Bible calls heavens, plural, lowercase, what we call atmosphere, sky, uh, solar system, Milky Way, all of that. So that is all done away with. The earth is done away with in uh, chapter 20 as it closes. Judgment has come. Those people who have not received Jesus as Savior and Lord, uh, their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. They are cast into, at the end of chapter 20, cast into the lake of fire and sulfur to be there forever, away from the presence of God. But 
Revelation does not end there. It does not end with chapter 20. God gave us 48 more verses after the world's gone to tell us about heaven, to tell us about his home, to tell us about our future home and and loved ones that we have who are there now. 48 verses over the course of chapter 21 and chapter 22 to tell us all about heaven. And so whenever John saw into heaven, he called the, first of all, heaven, he called it the new heaven and the new earth. Because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. First one annihilated, and he's not restoring the old one. The first one's gone, God's creating a new one. Now there are some denominations, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, others who believe heaven is going to be on this earth. It's going to be restored. Well, no, according to Scripture, it is, it's gone. It melts the fervent heat. It passes to the heavens. And so this earth will be a new one that God has created. So go to letter B on your outline, the new Jerusalem. I mentioned last week, if you picture chapters 21 and 22 like this, they make a lot more sense. Picture, first of all, after those who have not received Christ have been banished to hell, and the heavens have passed away. Imagine the new heaven and the new earth. You're taking a large look at it, like an overall look at it. Then, chapter 21, it zooms in. And you see one portion of the new heaven and new earth called the new Jerusalem. It's heaven. What we would call capital H, heaven. Then, chapter 22, you zoom in a little further and, and a part of the New Jerusalem, we're looking at the downtown square. You know, all Texas towns, the courthouse sits in the middle. There's a square around it, and all the streets are usually named off of the main square. First Street, Second Street, Third Street, A, B, C, D. Most Texas towns are like that. Well, the New Jerusalem has in the square, in the town square, a throne rather than a courthouse. It's a throne of God and of the Lamb. That's what John writes running down the main street from the throne is a river, clear as crystal, unpolluted waters running like a river right down the middle of Main Street. We don't know if it's a river on either side. We don't know if it's a river in the middle. We don't know if the tree of life is over it. If there's a series of trees of life on each side, we don't know those things. It's just how John told us. So there's a lot we don't know, but there are some things then that we do know. So let's look a little bit at letter B on your outline, the new Jerusalem, that is heaven. That's chapter 21, verses 9 to 27. As John saw heaven, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, an angel took him up to a high mountain to show it to him. And heaven, that he saw, was immense. 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia in every direction, even up. 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles. And so we've talked about if you go 1,400 miles from where I'm standing this direction, it's Los Angeles, and 1,400 this direction, it's Philadelphia, and 1,400 this direction, it's the country of Belize, and 1,400 that direction goes well past the International Space Station. And so you can imagine how massive and big heaven is. So John, the angel measured it, showed John, he talks about it. He says, a radiant glow like a diamond was how heaven was described. Twelve gates with angelic guards there. The walls that are 72 yards thick. The foundation, which meant permanence. Made of massive jewels and beautiful stones and pearls. 
There's no temple there. There's no sun. There's no moon because the presence of God is so dazzling and brilliant. We don't need light because He is light. And John described all of this. And then as we close, looking at the new Jerusalem, it was interesting because everything heaven had been described as up to that point had sounded more like a jewelry store. Jewelry stores are a little cold and sterile. They don't feel like home. It's beautiful in there, but they don't feel like home. But starting in chapter 22, he starts describing heaven as home with softness, with grass and trees and fruit to eat and hills. And he starts to describe it in a, in a, more, in a way that describes it sounds more like home. So letter C on your outline, the city's main street, the throne. He then began to describe this new beautiful city of God. He called it the throne of the Lamb and of God from the very center of the city. Notice he didn't just say the throne of God. He said, and the Lamb, because Jesus is God. I know there are a lot of belief systems that don't believe that. But Jesus, Scripture teaches, is very much God in the flesh. And so he described the throne of God and of the Lamb, the water of life, the tree of life, where he said, in this city, nothing is accursed. Nothing, yeah, there's no curse there. We live under the curse. We live under sin. We don't know what a world has ever been like without the curse. We don't know that. I've never for a moment taken breath that's uncursed. Because all the earth is cursed because of sin. So at that time, in heaven, the curse is gone. And I don't know what that's going to be like. I can't describe it to you. I've never experienced it. But we will experience for the first time blessedness with no curse. We'll see God face to face. No one's ever seen him face to face on earth. We'll see him face to face. There will be no more night. Every word that John wrote, he said, is trustworthy and true. And then we close last week with Jesus saying, I am coming soon. And we talked about, he said it 2,000 years ago, but he's not back how is that soon? And we talked about the word that's used there, tacky, is it literally doesn't, it means, uh, uh, it means quick or sudden as opposed to soon in time measurement. So, in other words, he says, I'm coming suddenly. When it happens, I will come quickly and suddenly like a twinkling of an eye. So that's how we close that, uh, the, our last session. Now let's go to letter D, look at verses 8 through 15 of chapter 22. Letter D, the final words of the prophecy. Now, as we start looking at the final section, chapters 8, or rather verses 8 through 20, it's filled with uh, authenticity, warnings, promises, instructions, and they're kind of all loosely tied together. You know how sometimes whenever Paul would write a letter, and at the very end of it, it's look, look like it's like a hodgepodge of everything he was thinking of, so he just threw it in there. It's kind of how Revelation feels a little bit. At the very end of it, the prologue, verses 8 through 20, it just seems like a lot of things that are loosely tied together that John tries to summarize before he closes the book. So because of that, it's, it's hard to outline, just to be honest with you, teaching it. If you notice, I just said the final words. <laughs> because you really can't outline what he said to close, verses 8 through 20. Now, I will say this. 
the ending of the book sounds just like the beginning of the book. Chapter 22 and chapter 1 sound almost identical. John repeats everything in chapter 1 and chapter 22. Listen, listen to the similarities. In both of them, God is the one who authenticated the words he's writing. Okay? In both the beginning and the end, Jesus endorsed the book as being true. In both the beginning and the end, angels mediated the book. In both the beginning and the end, John identifies himself as the writer. Both the beginning and the end, he claims to be a prophet. In both chapter 1, 2, and 3, and chapter 22, he says the book is written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And in both the beginning and the end, he brings encouragement to the faithful. And in chapter 1 and 22, he brings warnings to the wicked. And in both chapter 1 and chapter 22, Jesus said, I am coming soon. So it's bookended, isn't it? It begins and it ends the same way. Why? Good question. You're all right. Nobody knows. But here's a theory. One theory by some theologians is that he did it this way to show this was no random dream. This was no random vision. This was nothing that he was just out in the sun too long on the island of Patmos and he had this vision. He got too hot. He overheated. It's, it, it's his way of saying it's bookended with the same things. It's true. It's not just some wild, crazy thing I dreamed up. God was on the front end. God was on the back end. He put it together. It's his vision. It's not mine. It's his vision. So some people say it was John's way of authenticating the book, of saying everything in between is bookended with exactly what happened. Wasn't dreaming it. It wasn't imagining it. God gave me a vision into heaven. So that very well may be the reason it ends and it begins the same way. Having said that, let's start looking at the final words. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Well, he told us that in chapter 1. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now, here's what I find strange. Do you remember earlier in the book, John, this angel showed him all that's to happen, showed him heaven, and he was so overwhelmed that he fell down at the feet of the angel and worshiped? You remember that? And the angel said, No, oh, no, 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 John, you're getting all, no, no, I'm a created being like you. Get up, don't worship me, worship God. And that happened in chapter 19, verse 10. And now he records it again. So, question, did John do it again? Or did John 
record what happened earlier. If he did it again, why on earth would he? You don't worship angels. You worship God. And if he's just recording again what he did earlier, how embarrassing. Do you like to record your failures? I don't. I like to move on from them and not bring them up anymore. So why did he mention it again? Or why did he do it again? Verse 9. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So most Bible scholars believe John didn't do it a second time. He's recording what happened earlier in chapter 19, and he's recording it again. Not to bring embarrassment to himself. But to try to get the point across, this book is about worshiping God. And that's a message we need to hear. Because you know what? There are so many people that think this book is about, oh, figuring out the end times. Oh, what part's China going to play? What part's Russia going to play? Oh, oh, how's it going to happen? Oh, who's going to be the president? Whenever? And all the details. And you're missing. You read the entire book. Study the whole book. And you miss Christ. So this book is not about trying to figure all that out. This book is about worshiping the Lamb who's worthy to open the scroll to have you come into the presence of God and your home forever. That's what the book's about. So maybe, just maybe, he wrote this incident again at the end to remind us this book is all about worshiping God. God. Not about trying to figure anything out. Not about theories. Not about premillennial, postmillennial, all-millennial. Not about pre-trib, mid-trib, post. Not about all of that. It's about the Lamb who, who overcame and allowed you entrance into the presence of God. That's what it's all about. Interesting, starting in verse 8, John now addresses the readers in the first person. He hadn't done that since chapter 1, verse 1. And so now he again addresses us in first person as his concluding signature of saying, I was an eyewitness of all of these things. He affirmed the angel's words were true. And the goal of the book, the goal of our culture, I I believe, should be worship God. Don't worship created being. Worship God. Now, notice I said a created being. Angels are created. Don't worship angels. Some people do. You go to a Christian bookstore, you see a ton of stuff on angels. You see things people can buy that that, that make put in your car where angels watch over you. You can buy things around your neck so angels watch over you. Our culture is obsessed with angels. Just any Christian bookstore, look at all the angel stuff. And an angel is a created being like you are. Jesus is not a created being. He's eternal. Some denominations believe he is a created being. He's not. He's eternal. Angels are created. We're created. Don't worship a human. Don't worship a pastor. Don't worship angels. 
worship God. So our culture needs to hear that. Our churches need to hear that. Maybe that's one of the reasons verses 8 and 9 are closing this book because we need to hear worship God only. Verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Why would he write that? Well, if you look at ancient documents, ancient writings would often seal their documents for, for, to be opened sometime in the future. We would know them as time capsules in a sense. But a lot of documents were written in, in biblical days. They would be sealed with authenticity, uh, whether it was the king or the emperor, but his signet would be on there to show this is authentic. It would be sealed. It would be put away. Sometime in the future, you would reopen it again. Sometimes the date was given. Sometimes it wasn't. But you reopen it again. And Daniel was told to do that in chapter 8 and chapter 12. You remember, God gave Daniel a prophecy of something in the future and said, Now, Daniel, seal this up for a future time. It's going to happen later on. But when John finished Revelation, the Holy Spirit said, Don't seal it. Leave it open. Because these things are going to happen soon. I want the public to know. I want everybody to know. I want to, John hides nothing. He lays it all out there. Makes public what God has disclosed to him is going to happen in the end times. So he said, leave the book open so everybody anytime can read it. Verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What did he mean by that? That's kind of odd phrases, isn't it? I think what he's saying here is, whenever Jesus returns, let what everybody's doing, it's gonna, they're going to stay in that state. Jesus will come suddenly, twinkling of an eye, no chance to get right with God, no chance to change your ways, no chance to repent. So if you're living a life of filth, that's your state. If you're living a life of evil, that's your state. If you're living a life of holiness, that's your state. Living a life of righteousness, that's your state. Really, it's one of the strongest warnings in all the Bible not to put off receiving Christ as Savior. I know there are a lot of people, well, I'll, I'll think about it, I'll think about it. That's fine, you may have time to think about it. But at the moment Jesus returns, the state you're in is your eternal state. If it's without Christ, you'll be without Christ. When Jesus comes suddenly, you don't change your destiny. There's no time to change. What, you're, what you are then, you will remain forever. Did you know that one in six Americans don't believe that? One in six Americans believe when you die, you will either nothing happens or you get a second chance to be a better person. 
They believe in reincarnation. They believe that you'll come back in another life. One out of six Americans believe that John 22:11 is wrong. They believe that it would be unfair of God to only give you one chance at life. And if you get it wrong, to be banished to an eternal hell. That's unfair of God. Well, most Americans, or many Americans say. But he's not being unfair because he's, how many warnings has he given us? How many times has he stated, here's how you receive Christ. Turn from your ways. I'm coming soon. The state whatever, that you're in whenever I return is going to be your eternal state. And so whatever you've chosen to do is, is your destiny. One theologian said there's no worse punishment God could give someone than to give them up to themselves. And that's right. If you insist on living away from the Lord, that's fine. But that could be your eternal state. Whenever he returns, whatever your state is, that will be your decision. So, basically saying, if you've heard and read 21 chapters and it hasn't changed you, there's not much hope of what will. If these warnings are not sufficient, there's nothing more that God has to say. So your state at that moment will be your eternal state. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. All right, second time he's told us this in this chapter. He's going to tell us two more times, four times total in chapter 22. But this is the second time he is saying, I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming suddenly, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. What is recompense? Reward. Absolutely. It's a reward. It's, it literally means dues paid for the work you've done. So if you put in eight hours, you get eight hours wages. So Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon, and whenever I come, you will receive what you've worked for. Wait a minute, that sounds like salvation by works. No, we're saved by grace and faith, but we're rewarded based on what we've done. Yes, there's a reward system in heaven. How does it work? We're not certain. But he says, I'm coming soon and I'm bringing my reward system with me. My recompense, I will, I will pay you what I owe you when I get there. It's a promise, not a blessing, but to judge. Salvation by grace, rewards are by works. So, we're not saved by works, but a living faith includes works. I have a real problem with somebody who comes and says, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and they never go back to church ever. You've, you've really accepted Christ as your Lord, and you're disobeying Hebrews 10, 24 and 25? Oh, I received Christ, but their life never changes. Not much fruit. No, they really weren't much, much different. I'm sorry, salvation didn't come. 
Because according to Scripture, if you're saved, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Fruit, Jesus said, will result. So your living faith should include living works. Not saved by the works. But should include works. If you submit your life to the Lordship of Christ... That means you have a new boss. You don't live like you used to live. You don't drink what you used to drink. You don't go where you used to go. You're different. And so he's saying, I'm bringing the rewards with me. I'll reward you for what you've done. The final judgment is going to be a time, I believe, both of great joy and of great regret. Both. Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In verse 13, Jesus is given three titles. Alpha and Omega, which meant he's eternal and he's sovereign. This phrase is applied to nobody in the Bible except Jesus. Nobody but Jesus. It's called the Alpha and the Omega. Obviously, it's first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, meaning that he is eternal and he's sovereign. Second title, I am the first and the last, meaning he is the cause and the goal of all of history. All of history is really his story. It's about Christ. And then the third title, I'm the beginning and the end. I finish what I start. And even Paul said that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of redemption. What he finishes, he ends. And I know, I know as Baptists we are criticized a lot for believing in once saved, always saved. I know that. We're one of the few denominations that believe that. Most denominations believe once you get saved, you can lose it. We're one of the few that don't believe that. I believe it not because I'm a Baptist, but because Scripture teaches it over and over and over. There are places. John 3.16 is the most basic one. If he promised to give me everlasting life, and if I can be saved today and lost tomorrow, he lied to me. It's not everlasting. That's temporary. But all through Scripture, he tells us. But one of the things he tells us is, if he has begun a good work in you, he'll finish it. You won't finish it. He will finish it. And here he says, the beginning and the end, what I start, I finish. It's going to be completed on that day. So three titles he's given in verse 13, Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end, all culminate in Jesus' return. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. So that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now, robes in Scripture, sometimes it's talking about just a physical garment that the, the Jews wore. Sometimes robes are symbolic. They're symbolic of, of works. A white robe is works that have been cleansed by the power of Christ and the blood of Christ. White robe, the purity of Christ's redemption, is the prerequisite for admission to the city. So if you want to be able to enter the gates of the new city, you must have a robe that is washed 
the blood of Christ. And so that's what, blessed are those who wash, their, literally means who have been washed, their robes have been washed so that they may have the right, the authority, the word is used, to inherit the blessing of following his commands and entering the city by the gates. Now, the word doing his command, just a side note, it's kind of a play on words. Doing his commands and washing robes are the exact same Greek word. They sound just alike, except one letter is changed right in the middle. I is changed to a U. So it's kind of a play on words as he spoke it in Greek to make it sound like the same words. But it's talking about doing his commands and washing the robes. Both are referring to salvation. Now look at the last verse. We'll close. Verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Let's talk about that verse for a moment and we'll close. It sounds like as you read verse 15... That you have the city, the new, the new Jerusalem, heaven, and outside the city gates and walls are lurking and milling around people who want to get into heaven but can't. That's kind of an odd picture, isn't it? I mean, we're there in heaven, but you're enjoying heaven, and outside you hear people who are evil and want to get in, but they can't. That's not the picture. Remember chapter 20, they've already been separated. They're already vanished. The word outside there does not mean outside the gates. It means outside the kingdom. In fact, my seminary professor, when I was going to seminary, Dr. Bruce Corley years ago, all went all the way through the New Testament and showed the motif of inside and outside, inside and outside. All the way through the Gospels, you see it. Even Paul talked about it, inside and outside. You're in Christ or you're not. You're, those that are, he, Jesus described hell as being those that are outside the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And so there's always a motif of you're either in Christ or you're removed, separated from him. So this is not the picture that they're right outside the gates hanging around. It's, it's, it's that, that they're, they're completely separated from Christ. But who's separated from Christ? Well, let's look. Dogs. Oh no, pastor, does that mean dogs aren't going to heaven? No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. The word that's, that's used here, it, it, there, there were two words for dogs in the New Testament. One was a little lap dog, like would be your pet. And the other word, kion, K-Y-O-N, was a word for, uh, they had a lot of wild, aggressive scavenger dogs in those days. You didn't approach them, they were mean, they just scavenged, they weren't pets at all. They're more like we would know coyotes, as we would know them, both called dogs. But they're, and that's, if you remember the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, it was a play on words of the kind of dogs there. The little lap dog or the scavenger dog. So here he says, outside are the dogs. He's not talking about the, the literal cow, that we, as we would know. He's talking about those people who, who showed contempt for Christ. They, they heard the, the gospel and rejected it. And those were called the immoral, the impure. They were called dogs. Jews saw Gentiles as dogs, the immoral and impure. Until 
Paul said this is a gospel for Gentiles as well. So dogs are outside, those people who have shown contempt for Christ. And then he says sorcerers. The word is pharmatikos in Greek. We get the word pharmacy from it. It means drugs. It means illegal, illegal, illicit drug use. Literally. The pharmatikos. The sexually immoral. The pornos is the word used. We get the word pornography from it. The sexually immoral. Murderers. Idolaters. Those that put something above Christ. And everyone who loves and practices lies. Why would he include those? Because they're children of the father of lies. Satan. The devil's the father of lies. So, outside you get to go be with the one you're like. You're a liar, you go to the father of lies. You do all these other things without Christ, go to the one who originates all of those things. And so you end up, your destiny ends up with the one you're like. If you're like Christ, you be with him. If you're living like the devil, you're with him. And so the very, one of the very last things John does, he closes by making a sharp contrast between the saved and the lost. I know you and I, sometimes we don't make such a sharp contrast. We go, well, you know, I don't know that they're a Christian. They could be. They're a good person. But, you know, I don't know. We sometimes don't know the lines very, very, very drawn very much. But the Bible makes it very clear. You're then Christ or you're not. And you'll spend forever with the one you're like. Well, next Wednesday night, we'll pick up with verse 16 and we'll close the book. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Thank you for those who have joined us online and joined us here. Lord, I thank you that in Christ we are made righteous, that we're made holy in you. And God, I'm thankful for that. Lord, I just pray that each one of us each day will live for you as our new Lord. Whatever you command us to do, that we will do it and we will follow you closely. God, would you continue to bless us this night in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.